you're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Wednesday, and in these episodes, Sangram and myself, James Carberry, focus on personal development. We'll share books and other resources that are helping us get a little bit better every single day. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I got a special announcement for you. I have been part of the Peak community for almost a year now. And here is the thing. Less than 1% of the marketers become CMOs. And you know what's even harder? Staying a CMO without a high caliber peer network that can help you beat the odds. In Peak community, they build a community around you by creating exclusive events and experiences to help you become 1% better each week. So you can get promoted, have an impact, and do the best work of your life. This episode that you're listening to is an example of the conversations that happen literally every single day in the Peak community. So check out, the link is below. If you want to be part of it, it's only for marketers. So make sure you're not a lurker, but someone who want to have an impact and do the best work of your life. Let's go. Hi, everybody. It's Andrew Gaffney, Editorial Director with Demand Gen Report and Content Director for the B2B Sales and Marketing Exchange. Really excited you could join us today. Really excited to get the event going. Obviously, we were hoping to be in person with everyone and build on the momentum we had from our uh, event last year. Uh, unfortunately, as all of you are living, we're working from home, uh, social distancing still. So unfortunately, uh, physical events uh, are not an option. But we're really happy to, to, to move forward and excited to, to launch this virtual experience. Um, you know, we're, we're, it's, we've woven it into the theme of the event. Um, and you'll hear speakers, you know, their speakers are, are recording sessions from their house. And a lot of them are figuring out ways to work around their dog being at home and kids wandering in. So have some patience around that. I know all of you feel that and deal with it on a day-to-day basis. But what we're talking about in the theme here is creative ways to deal with the new revenue realities. And uh, we're going to be touching on how uh, companies are, you know, examples, creative examples of how both marketing and sales teams have found creative ways to engage and stay in front of their clients and prospects at a time when we can't be you know, physically in front of them. So we're really excited. I mean, uh, unfortunately, the downside is we can't physically be together. But one of the good things about a virtual event is we were able to really expand the audience. So last year, we had about 1,000 folks that, that came together for B2B SMX in Boston, well, over, over 2,000 registrants for the event, and it's folks from all around the globe. Uh, really excited and proud about that to be able to, to, to expand the content and share it with so many for, more marketing and sales executives. Uh, so there's some positives that we can take away from that. Uh, we're really excited and proud to be working with uh, partners again this year. Uh, last year, for the first time, we partnered with Terminus and Flip My Funnel on, on B2B SMX and brought you know along the great content that they do and the community that they have. Uh, this year, Tim Kopp, their CMO, CEO, is going to be uh, leading a great fireside chat with a couple of top CXOs in the B2B space, and they've helped us curate a great uh, re- um, flip by funnel track. So you'll, you'll be able to take advantage of that. Uh, we're also really happy to be partnering with uh, Pedowitz Group on, uh, with their RevTalks track. Um, they actually put together a workshop yesterday, and they um, um, will be working with us on a certification program and helped us curate uh, the RevTalks track as well. So some great content from them. Um, also across the board, across these days, there'll be six different tracks, more than 40 different sessions, uh, some really great examples and thought leadership that you can take advantage of. 
beyond the content, part of our goal with this event has been to try to make this something of a model for, for B2B marketers. We know all of you out there are, are, you know, the unique thing about our audience is you're not just here to learn, but you're here to get inspiration. A lot of you do events yourselves. You're trying to figure out how that you can take some of these virtually. So, so part of our, our goal here is to really explore what's possible and give you some, some ideas for that. One of our key partners in that regard has been PFL. We started work with them a few months ago and from the very top, their, their team got involved and really helped us think about a ways to, to help make the program integrate some of the personal high touch elements that we really loved about the physical event and then bring them into the virtual experience. So I wanna bring in Marnie Reed, who's one of their top executives to share with you. Most of you that registered probably have already gotten a welcome kit. I wanna ask her to share some background about the thinking that went behind that. Also some, some thinking about you know, what that looks like on a, on a wider scale. So Marnie, uh, please join me. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. And welcome, everybody. I'm really glad to be here and excited to help kick this off with Andrew today. PFL really partnered with B2B SMX to make this year's conference more than just a virtual event. We have been a longtime sponsor of Demand Gen Report events because they create innovative experiences that really bring together some of the best B2B marketers. And we knew their virtual, their virtual experience was not going to be any different but the fact of the matter is, is as marketers, we're so challenged right now because everything has moved to virtual, but there's so much competition out there for us to not only get people to register, but way more important is to get people to actually engage with us during our events. And you might be asking yourself, how do I get my audience to engage when they're in their living room, their kitchen, who knows where I'm in the office. So, and much like many of you back in March, PFL had the same kind of pump the brakes, like, oh my gosh, what does our new world look like? And we did the exact same thing that probably much uh, many marketers did, which is we stopped sending out tactile touches in our own marketing sequences. And what we saw was our marketing numbers just plummeted. It was not good. Our engagements rate dropped significantly to a 9.7% reply rate. Our meeting booked rate went to a 0.9%. It was just not a happy situation for all of us. And Weeks later, we had to take a step back and just say, okay, guys, what are we going to do? We have to do something differently. And so we took a leap of faith and just started infusing our tactile touches back at our marketing and our numbers jumped. So 21% reply rate and our meeting booked rate jumped to a 9.8%. So that's a pretty significant difference from where we were. And the reason I'm telling you this today is because we really wanted to take you on a similar engagement experience. And so as you registered for this, this event, we asked that for you, in order for you to really experience the full B2B SMX, please provide us with your preferred mailing address. And PFL is the only tactile marketing solution that can execute innovative brand experiences at scale, like the B2B SMX welcome kit that Andrew mentioned. I got mine. And as you look inside, there's some fun, engaging things that you can have in there to work with during the event. And you can grab your tools. We have the the fun uh, little guidebook, event guidebook that we have that has some coloring pages in it if you're a doodler. But then you also have the ability to spark your creativity and take those notes as you listen to your sessions. There's some really great content coming up the next two days. I am confident that you're going to be taking away some really good pieces of information that you can bring back to your own marketing team and Im impact your own business. So there's another thing that we have in here that I think is going to be fun for everybody who's here. There's a passport. So you can collect the codes by going to the featured sessions or the marketplace sponsors and then fill out your passport and enter to win some really fun prizes. So the grand prize is Apple AirPods Pro, 
but there's many others. So don't hesitate to do this, but make sure that you turn in your passport by November 5th of this year. Um, we will be selecting winners on November 6th. So PFL can really help your marketing team create the experiences that you have gone through this week, today, to allow your audience to engage with you and engage with your brand and really create some success for your virtual events. So if you are interested in finding out more, make sure that you find us uh, at our virtual booth and we're happy to have a conversation with you and see how we might be able to help you in your own marketing. So thank you for inviting us. I'm excited to be here. Have a great show. Andrew, let's kick it off. Awesome. Thanks, Marty. Thanks again uh, to the team at PFL that really literally helped us think sort of inside and outside the box. I think that'll help to positively influence your experience over the next two days. Awesome. So, uh, without further ado, I want to introduce our first keynote. Um, I've had the, the pleasure of hearing Jay Akunzo speak and, and uh, attending uh, sessions that he's spoken. Really uh, inspirational. So Jay is going to be sharing a session with us on how to regain clarity, the new plan A, uh, how to get proactive and do exceptional work again. Um, so you've heard a lot about it during these transformative and disruptive times. Everybody seems to have a a different idea about how you should change and recover and what concepts might look good in general. But what some of the things Jay is going to really be providing is what's the right answer for you and how do you rethink that, that process? So I want to, without further ado, turn it over to Jay to get us started. Hey, thanks for being here. This uh, this wasn't plan A, but uh, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> I keep hearing some version of that idea over and over again. Well, this wasn't our plan A, so that means we have to settle for plan B or C or D or E. And so does the team, the clients, the customers, the partners. And don't misunderstand. I get why that's the reaction. But why, when the first idea or attempt doesn't work, or the typical approach is taken away from you, why does that automatically mean we have to settle? Because who wants to settle? Again, I totally get it. This year sucks. Did quite hit the high note. Perfect for 2020. Look, childcare and school are impossible. Work is ridiculous. Social contact is gone. And that horrible list right there is for the lucky few among us. It gets worse from there. And by the way, I hope you and yours are okay and continue to be okay. Hang in there you're doing great. But there's this phrase I keep coming back to. Do what you can where you are with what you've got. Do what you can where you are with what you've got. But that implies that we're used to making decisions based on where we are and what we've got, based on our firsthand experience of the world. And we're not. That's not how we're trained or told or just used to making choices at work. Instead, we make choices based on best practices. And now, more than ever, we have to learn to question best practices, to think for ourselves, to find our new plan A. Especially since so many of our conventional norms and approaches have been tossed out the window for us. So yeah, this wasn't plan A. And although it's tempting, we need to stop settling for B or C or D or plan J. Ask my wife what it's like to settle for plan J. huh? No, no, no Rodney Danger field fans here. Okay, cool. We'll move on. We don't need to settle. We need to adapt, to evolve, to change. We need to learn how to incorporate new variables we didn't expect into our equations, into our decision-making process. And we can do that 
so that we can make the best possible decisions. We don't need to move from plan A to plan B or C or D. We need a new plan A, the best possible decision in our current, actual, real-world context. But before we can do that, we first need to fix how we usually make decisions. We need a system that incorporates new variables. We can't keep relying on the best practice. When we rely on the best practice, this is our hope for the work. We're doing something, it gets hard, but then we find the best practice and implement it, and we're whisked away to the promised land where finally we see our best results. That is our hope for best practices. But our reality? Uh, That looks a little bit more like this. Over and over again, we look for the answer from someone else. Maybe our past selves, the documentation of our business, the conventional wisdom of a niche, or our leaders, the experts, the influencers, you name it. And each and every time we hope and we pray that finally, one of these things will deliver as advertised one time. And in the information age, this process has gone insane. There is so much information and advice. And they're all just spokes on a wheel. First one is on top, then another, and on and on this wheel spins crushing our spirits and our attempt to think for ourselves, to incorporate new variables, to use our firsthand experiences to make better decisions when things get uncertain and new ideas or concepts or processes are required. In other words, to do what we can where we are with what we've got. This wheel now poses a problem. The best practices have been plan A, and we need to break this wheel to find the new plan A. We need to question conventional wisdom and start thinking for ourselves. Because remember, finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. So how do we do that? Well, I think it starts by remembering why we're here, what we're actually doing with our work, what our goals really are. When the goal is to generate a result, to grow the metrics, and suddenly the proven playbook for doing so is thrown into question, it's easy to panic. But the metrics are not goals. Not really. The metrics are how we measure the goals. There's something called Goodhart's Law, and we'd be wise to learn about this right now. Goodhart's Law reminds us, when a measure becomes a goal, it ceases to be a good measure. When the goal is a thousand new leads driven by your blog, you start to game systems. You get really good at putting names in a database and saying, look, we got new leads. We force people to fill out forms to get a prize, but they don't want to hear from us. They're not qualified leads. They just want the prize. They have no interest in our brand, no interest in hearing from our marketers or our salespeople. They aren't good leads. They aren't qualified leads. But hey, they said the goal was a thousand leads through the blog. And technically, we did that. When a measure becomes a goal, it ceases to be a good measure. That's because it incentivizes at all costs behaviors, system gaming, shortcuts, and hacks. We leap onto that wheel and strap ourselves to it. And there, maybe we cling tightly to the conventional wisdom of our choosing, but get crushed as the world turns. Or we can keep reaching out to every new trend that comes up and never firmly grasp anything in our work. And if we're not careful, this wheel can spin wildly out of control as we devolve into panic and reactive work. So we're going to be on Twitter. Okay, great. Well, what's the best time for us to tweet? The top report on Google says 3 p.m. So we're going to tweet at 3 p.m. Except now that everybody knows that fact so easily, guess what happens? That is no longer the best time to tweet. 
But we don't have time to fix that problem because we also think about email in our work. Email is one of the best ways to connect with our audience. But why are some experts saying email is dead? That makes no sense to me. What with the, the MailChimps thriving and the Substacks and the convert kits and the active campaigns and the other two word email vendors that exist out there. So, so focus on email. Yeah. And also focus on Instagram. You can't forget about Instagram. We're posting pics. We're sharing stories. We're hashtagging the bejesus out of every single post. And right where it feels like we're finally getting the hang of this, here comes TikTok. And now your boss is emailing you like, hey, what's your TikTok strategy? And you have no idea, but you're going to jump all over TikTok anyway. But have you heard? It's the era of video. Yeah, not TikTok video, but full-fledged, long-form, standalone video on your website. It is the era of video. And also podcasts. You can't forget about podcasts, but podcasts are just a subset of something larger called voice. And voice is eating the world. Have you heard? Voice is eating the world. Can we run our businesses and build our brands in a world dominated by voice? Hey, Alexa, please punch me in the face. Okay. It's like we're trapped. Our goal is always grow the metrics. And so we're always stuck on this endlessly spinning wheel of reactive work. And today, more than ever, that feels stressful. And I think we have a sneaking suspicion that it's causing us to settle too. But what if we could get unstuck and stop settling? I think we can if we remembered what the real goal is. The real goal isn't growth of the metrics. Growth is a measure, a sign you're achieving what? It's a measure of the real goal. And no matter how you articulate it, we all share some version of the real goal. Make a difference. We exist. We do our jobs. We build our businesses to make stuff that makes a difference, to do things that change others, that helps them, that improves their situations. Don't make some content. Don't make some calls. Don't make quota. Make a difference. Rather than drive a thousand new leads from the blog, your goal should be create the most helpful blog in the world for marketers who run podcasts or figure out and teach people how to solve three common podcasting challenges over the next 60 days. Those are real goals. Real goals sound like the change you seek to make for others, not the numbers you want to hit. You hit your numbers if you can affect change. And by the way, real goals don't change based on the current climate. You don't decide to be slightly less helpful because of the pandemic. You don't lower your projection of how well you teach or inspire. We're going to inspire people 50% less quarter over quarter because of the pandemic. No. Instead, you decide, okay, if that's the goal and this is the situation, how do we respond? How do we continue to execute against that goal? And oh, by the way, how do we measure that goal? Well, maybe the metrics going up, but also qualitative responses and surveys and subscription and lifetime value and word of mouth referrals the nuances of understanding if you've actually made a difference. You use metrics to measure your progress towards a goal. The metrics are not themselves the goal. The goal is to make a change. So are you making something that makes a difference? Because that is the goal. And when that's the goal, you stop relying so much on best practices, which we so often approach as cheat sheets, shortcuts. And instead, we'll start to look reality in the face, spot problems, and solve them. We do what we can where we are with what we've got. We use our first-hand situations to make choices. So let's see what that looks like when put into action and figure out how we can do that too. Let's travel to Detroit to meet a company that I was grateful to meet when it was safe to do so. And uh, sure, this company sells hair care products, but they know that their real goal is to make a difference. 
Erica interview marker? It's your it's your girls, you know, where you go and you go tell your girls first, you know, where you go cry on your girl's shoulder because, um, you know, your relationship ended or your, anything like that, that it's real. And it's not sort of uh, this virtual place where you are removed from human contact. That's the strange thing. It's the exact opposite. It is where you receive the connection and the replenishing and the support and the love as much or more than you would somewhere else. She's talking about a brand's Facebook group? Yes. The Nation, as its 10,000 members, mostly Black women from around the U.S., like to refer to it. The Nation is run by the hair care company Naturalicious, based in the Detroit metro area. The community and the company are led by Naturalicious founder and CEO Gwen Jameer, who ensures that The Nation is about supporting its members with education and love, not shilling products. While there's plenty of talk about hair care, there's just as much real talk. People sharing news that they've eloped before they tell their families, or women asking for help escaping abusive relationships. Like, sometimes I go to Facebook just to go into the nation, just to see what's happening in the nation, who's posting about their kids or who's posting, you know. People share a lot of things that aren't hair-related in the nation, too, because it's kind of like a family to us. It's this safe, encouraging, beautiful place that Gwen created where there will be nothing but positivity. There will be nothing but uplifting. Um, And if you do anything than that, you will not be welcomed here. It is your girl, Gwen Jameer. Welcome to this week's edition of Real Hair Revelations, where we powwow about all things that you have been thinking about when it comes to your hair. If you don't trim them because you're scared to cut your hair, you're going to end up with split ends way up here. 70 to 90% of what you put on your skin actually goes into your body. Hey, Elle, I see some new names here. Linda, I want you to think about shifting your thought process when it comes to your beauty. Yeah, there's a whole struggle. So women of color, particularly African-American women, spend on average two and a half to four hours on what we call wash day. Wash day is the day that you literally take out of your week to wash your hair. It's a whole day process. And God forbid you have children that have a whole lot of hair as well. It's a whole weekend, right? So imagine spending two, three, four hours just washing, conditioning, deep conditioning, detangling your hair and not and still ending up with subpar results. Like that's the worst thing, right? Because time is the only thing we can't get back, right? right? So you're spending all this time. You still end up hating it at the end of the day. And you go through this your whole life and you don't have an experience of looking in the mirror and seeing someone that you love. Tabrina Dixon is a member of The Nation. A mental health therapist from Ann Arbor, Michigan, she joined the group after growing frustrated at how her demanding lifestyle and her career meant the only viable hairstyle was a buzz cut. I mean, don't get me wrong. I rock my buzz cut. I look really cute. I got the face for it. That's what I've been told. I'm just saying. So, like, I looked really cute with my hair short. It was very, very easy. Sabrina vented to the group where Gwen invited her to the office to help her style her hair. So I didn't respond. And so I get on and I post again like a week or two later, like, I'm so frustrated with my hair. And she was like, yeah, I mentioned for you to come by. I'm still waiting. You haven't stopped by yet. And I'm like, oh, she's serious. Like, she owns the company. She She's going to help me style my hair. What? And it's more than just, like, Gwen, the head of this company, 
It's this, it's this person who cares so much about a group of people who don't get cared about much in society in the first place. So often the pictures and the visuals and what we hear about our hair is that it's hard to manage, it's not great, it looks horrible, it's not professional in the workplace. And so, you know, it's something that, you know, we're still battling against. Like there is a case in California where women are now allowed to wear their natural hair in in a workplace. Like there was an actual case in, in a courtroom where a woman was fired because of her hair and they deemed that that wasn't appropriate. So it's still a yeah, it's that's the world that we kind of live in. So like a lot of black women have had experiences where they have been told that their hair isn't professional um, when it's in its natural state. Yeah, those of us who get it really, really get it. We'll get back to the story of Naturalicious in just a moment. There are some twists and turns I didn't see coming that we just have to see together. Um, but for now, I just wanted to tease out one of the biggest things I learned from them that can help us break our dependency on best practices and quite frankly, improve how we make choices when new variables hit our world like they're doing right now. So Gwen and her team know that their goal is to make a difference, and this causes them to fundamentally change how they see marketing and sales. When we think about our work, most of us picture the funnel. You know the funnel, right? And given this view of marketing and sales, many of us believe that to fix something, we need more awareness. That, as a result, incentivizes all kinds of icky tactics and brute force strategies. It's the stuff you should really never do, but during the pandemic, it's the stuff you should really never do. Our work devolves into the process of blasting alerts and vomiting links everywhere and driving leads and aggressive sales instead of serving and leading, helping and inspiring. We think, if only people knew about our stuff... If only they knew it existed or we existed, if only they were aware of it, surely they would like it. Unappealing, unappetizing, unsubscribe. Figuratively and of course, very literally. Our work isn't about awareness. It's about affinity. We assume that if they just knew we existed, they'd like us. But how about we actually focus on the like us part? That's really hard, but it's the goal. And if your goal is affinity instead of awareness, the only tactic that really works is to create a better experience. Earn trust and love over time. Less click here to tweet and more sharing things actually worth tweeting. Marketing isn't something you do to people, but with them and for them. Marketing isn't about grabbing attention. It's about holding it. That kind of feels a little transactional, especially because we're talking about humans. So like, were you uncomfortable when I just said that? Yeah, samesies. All right, let's rephrase it. Let's rephrase it. Marketing isn't about who arrives. It's about who stays. And our jobs are to make things that people want to stay with, make things that make a difference. And because that's the job, we can picture not a funnel, but instead concentric circles. Taking this view of marketing and sales, we can stop focusing on the outer circle, the awareness of total strangers, and instead invest all our time and energy focusing on the inner circles. Your work helps earn the trust and love of people who are already aware of you such that they become super fans. And then these super fans can become advocates to the outer circles for free. So whether you have a humanities and stories mentality to this, as I do, or you think in dollars and cents, this just makes sense. It's an inefficient, ineffective way to run your business, to run sprinting around the world, going cold to strangers and telling them that you exist. It makes no sense. 
it's far more effective if you focus on the inner circles and bring them ever tighter to the center, making them super fans. And then they voluntarily tell their friends for nothing. This work is all about creating passionate fans, not merely awareness, affinity. And that's why 100% of the people who work in business, no matter if they think about the big emotional stuff or they count the metrics and the dollars, 100% of us should focus on making a difference. Not only is it great for others, it's great for us too. Don't you just love it when that happens? So that is how teams think when they focus on making a difference. And that's how Gwen and her team at Naturalicious think too. So let's go back to that story to learn how they became that way in the first place and to see some incredible places they went as a result. In 2012, Gwen started selling bottles of her natural hair care product. But when she lost her job in marketing at Ford, she decided to turn the product line into a company. This product is a shampoo, it's a conditioner, a deep conditioner, a detangler, and a leave-in conditioner all in one product. Today, she has a small team running the business side and a warehouse staffed in partnership with the organization STEP, Services to Enhance Potential, which partners employers with mentally and physically challenged individuals. It all fits with the way Gwen thinks about her business and her customers. I just see opportunity in every single bottle to literally change somebody's life. Why is the work that you do meaningful to you? Because if you, you know, a cynic might say, you're selling hair care products. Mm-hmm. And that's just not, the, the product itself has come up so little the more I talk to you and your team. So there seems to be something bigger and more meaningful at play. So why is the work specifically to you, Taba, meaningful day to day? I think the cliche answer is like representation. Okay. Which I also think is important. Sure. But I think it's also just the idea and that your hair does not have to be this frustrating like thing in your life. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I got to wash my hair today. It doesn't have to be like, I don't have time. I can't go to this thing. I can't go to brunch because I have to wash my hair. So it's it's not even about hair. And that's and I think that's what this is really just naturalicious is really not about hair. It's really about allowing people to live their best lives. Hey, Claymates. So Today, it's kind of cold in the office, and you can tell that fall is really here. So you're interacting with people that are fans of the brand all the time, every day. What's the feedback? What are you hearing? What is it like to interact with them? Um, they are ride or die. <laughs> it's a lady in Canada that pays duty fees and really high shipping to get things sent from Canada to here. And she does that, like, on a regular basis. Like, she pays extra money just to get her hair care products. She can go, probably, there's probably some place in Canada that she can go to get hair care products, but she's investing in this brand. So it's really, it's like, they're diehard. It's, It's just like this sisterhood. And it's really like the friends that you've never met. You know, and so when you meet somebody, you know, when we met face to face, we were all like, ah! 
because you 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 get to know them as individuals. Like I remember when you got engaged. You know what I mean? Like I remember when you posted y'all over your pictures with your bae and was like, we did it, we're engaged. I'm one of the newer people to the nation. And so coming into the group as a newbie and you guys were there and I see all of the things that you're doing and I see all of the things that you guys are doing. I'm not a big poster of there, but it didn't feel like this, right? It didn't feel like you're not welcome here. You're new here. It was like, girl, come on in. And, and, and very inclusive. One one um, story in particular that's more recent that I really appreciated where there, there was a Caucasian woman mm-hmm. who had adopted a black daughter who she's had, it sounds like, since birth. Mm-hmm. And she came into Naturalicious. And the first thing she said was, I'm a white woman. My daughter is black. I came from another group. They were very mean to me. Is it OK? She was asking, like, is it OK for me to be here? We were like, girl, yes. What do you need? You know? I'm very protective of you guys. Mm-hmm. I don't let BS into there. I remember there was a one time last year where someone had like, infiltrated the group and they were posting about some diet pill. And I remember being at Universal Studios and I got, I, and I, got, I got off the ride and I was like, listen here, don't come up in here with this crap. Yes, this is a this is a sisterhood. This is a come on in. This is a we right. we got your back. And, and it's it not lip service. We we know other groups. Right. We've been in other hair groups where it doesn't feel the same. So we had a customer who was in a really abusive relationship, um, physically abusive relationship, and she felt comfortable enough in our group, which is a testament to the type of community that we've built in the relationship that we've built with our customers. She's in this private group that we have of ten thousand women. And she's kind of giving us the play-by-play of what's happening every day. You know, she's like, oh, he's, he's about to come home. I'm going to go to bed so I don't have to deal with him. He came home today. He had, you know, I think I saw a gun in his, in his car. She's like, I'm afraid for my kids. And we're just like helping her through this. But all we can do is really just talk to her online about it. The team decided to run a promotion. It was Giving Tuesday, right after Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And Naturalicious decided to pledge its profits from every sale made that day to helping this member of the nation. Because I know as someone who has been in a domestically abusive relationship, the majority of time that people stay in these relationships, it's not because they're stupid. It's not because they are glutton for punishment. It's because the abuser holds all the reins. It's very hard to get out of a relationship when you have no money. By the end of the day, they raised $5,000 to help her and her kids move to another state and get a fresh start, where today they're thriving and safe. That's just what sisters do for their family. That's the kind of thing that makes me so excited about this business, because so many companies don't have that kind of relationship. What if we had not come to her aid? Who knows if she would even be alive today? To have that person truly, uniquely, authentically care about you, And not just your hair and not just that you buy her product and not just that you help her financially, but you as a human being, like who does that? And we don't even see our customers as customers. We actually view them as clients. Between customer and client, what's different? Yeah, like a customer is just a transactional thing. You know, it's like somebody, there's a SKU number, you scan the barcode, you buy it, you're off to the next, you know? When you have a client, you have a deeper insight into what their history has been, where they are in their journey, what they need to go to the next level. You know their name. But it's very clear 
that she cares about us as people and not as dollars, not as customers. Um, and that's what's come through. And I think that's what keeps us here. That's what keeps us in the nation and keeps us coming back for more. It is about the relationship. You know, it is about building that bond. It is about knowing that this person is going through this. This person is going through a depression and they have someone posting. You know, I haven't washed my hair in over a month because I'm depressed because my brother died and I'm still grieving. And, you know, so it's not just about like, oh, we'll use this product. Yeah, we got hair tips on there. We got, you know, try this, try that. But it's also, I think, more importantly about the relationship. And I think because she gets that it's about the relationship and encompassing the whole person, you know, and getting to know the whole person and everything that they're going through and not just like that they're having a bad hair day. That makes a big difference. You guys are. um have become my tribe and my sisterhood. And I would read things about, um, you know, sisterhoods and the importance of connection and having those people in your life. And I, for whatever reason, never really obtained that Mm. outside of my life. I mean, I have sort of friends, but not like sisterhood kind of, you know, girl, I got you, come on. Um, And yet I feel that way about people who I haven't met face to face. And I feel like I could you know, say anything to you guys and and let you know, and I would feel that love and support back. So you all have become my sisterhood. I can't, I can't imagine what life would be like not having this group of, of people who we've are there for so much. I can't even imagine that it's like the best support group there is out there, you know, and, um, and it's all because of Gwen. She created that space. You you can't know how special you are. You, you can't. You can't know how much you've impacted lives and how much you mean to all of us. But I'm talking from a personal standpoint. Like I posted once that I was posting from the mm-hmm. hospital and I didn't say that to like get sympathy. I was just sort of like, wow, look how long my hair lasted. And you called me. You're the CEO of a company with your own small child. And you called me to say, are you okay? What can we do for you? And I don't think you understand. You can't. But I want you to know that it's so much beyond anything. And what you do matters so much to so many people. And we could say thank you forever. And it wouldn't touch at all the depth. So. If you get it. You really get it. And shouldn't that just be how all business is done? The team at Naturalicious understands there's only one goal. Make a difference. And then every other goal is a little variation on that. Making the metrics go up isn't a goal. It's how we can tell if we're making progress towards a goal. There's a simple switch at the heart of this that we can each decide to make. In an era where the best practice really means the average practice, where the conventional playbook has been shredded for us, the way we break this endless cycle of settling, this endlessly spinning wheel, is to decide for ourselves and with our teams, stop acting like experts, start acting like investigators. See, experts value absolutes, 
They want to know what works in general. Investigators value evidence. They want to know what works in their situations. This is all about one core thing when we make this switch. Focusing your choices based on your context instead of the general advice, instead of the precedent. Doing what you can where you are with what you've got. Your context is messy. It doesn't fit the nice, neat calculus of the expert. Or said better, it doesn't fit the nice, neat calculus of the best practice. So best practices are like faulty equations because they're missing key variables, your variables. And those are the exact same things we need to start incorporating to thrive and find our new plan A. Stop acting like experts. Start acting like investigators. Stop obsessing over everyone else's right answers and start asking yourself better questions. Investigate your context. And there, you'll find insights you can use to make better choices, even in the face of change. Because finding the best practice isn't the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. Your context always contains three core variables that the best practice has not taken into account. Three things you can investigate and ask questions about. You, the specific person or people doing the work. Your audience, the specific people your work is for and your resources, your specific means of making the work happen. And if you can ask better questions about each of those specific things, you can escape the generalities, escape the reactive work and all the general advice out there, and you can find the best approach for you despite all that noise and change. So let's start with questions about you. Imagine that you are Lisa Schneider, the chief digital officer at Merriam-Webster Dictionary. When she first arrived at the company, they were acting rather predictably in a very boring, staid fashion. They kind of felt like the brand was a dusty old book on a shelf. Like on Twitter, every day they'd post the same boring stuff, a word of the day in the morning and a quiz at night. That's it. Over and over again, no personality, no experiments, no mixing things up, nothing. And Lisa was confused. She's like, Wait a second, the brand is boring externally, but the team is not. Internally, they're witty and warm and wonderful people. They'd never post boring things like our Twitter feed to each other on the internal chat we use. Instead, in the internal chat, they share things like this. The past, present, and future walked into a bar. It was tense. (laughs) Okay, if you didn't like that one, you're really not going to like this next one. Did you hear about the kidnapping down the street? Everything's fine. He woke up. Look, they work for the dictionary. They're a punny people. Why do I have two microphones? I don't. Lisa saw the difference between their external brand and their internal team. And she said, enough is enough. Hey, everyone, let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. That is a great example of an aspirational anchor. An aspirational anchor is a statement you can make, a challenge to your team, a rally cry for change. And these statements, these aspirations tend to focus you not on the metrics, but on making a difference, which yes, you can use the metrics to gauge your success around. Most people would say, grow your social followers. Lisa said, let's show the world how fun and relevant we are. That might grow their followers. And their first chance to do this was Memorial Day weekend. Internally, the team was having another chat debate in lively fashion about a crucial barbecue question. Is the hot dog a sandwich? It's, it's, it's not, right? Come on, it's not. But on that Friday, Lisa and her team tweeted this. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. The hot dog is a sandwich. What? Come on. No. And the internet lost its mind. 
People were like, how could you? I trusted you. You've gone too far. Or this next woman who pours out her soul on Twitter to a dictionary when she says this. And yay, for the hot dog is not a sandwich. For the meat, tis exposed to the heavens, not blanketed by bread. This is my decree. I'm alone. The brand even got press coverage from that tweet, and they were off to the races. Every little thing they did, from every tweet to large campaign, was all about this warm, witty, wonderful tone. This voice that they had inside their company all along, but they hadn't used for their brand. This change that they wanted to make became the focus, not the numbers. And the numbers went up. In a single year, their press coverage grew 7,000%. Their followers and their sales followed. Today, they have 914,000 followers on Twitter. They're a dictionary brand. In general, they're the same exact product as every competitor, except they don't operate in a generality. They look at their specifics and they use that to their advantage. You are the biggest variable in your context. That's what Merriam-Webster realized. And that's the power of focusing on the change, not the metrics. It's the power of using an aspirational anchor. An aspirational anchor combines two things in your unique situation your intent for the future, and some kind of hunger you have right now, some kind of dissatisfaction for the work you're currently doing doing, or the status quo of your industry. For Lisa and her team, their intent was clear. They wanted to be part of the conversation. But only when they added the hunger, the dissatisfaction, did things get better. Look, our voice is too bland. We're too predictable and boring. We aren't using this crucial variable in our own unique situation. So let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. So. Ask yourself, what is your aspirational anchor? Give yourself a reason to apply who you are to the work you do more fully. Because make no mistake, who you are is the one thing no one else can access. No one else can consider it when they come up with their best practice. Who you are is your unfair advantage. Have you given it any thought at all? The second variable unique to your situation is your specific audience. Meet Wistia the company that sells video software for marketing and salespeople. For years, Wistia's founders, Chris and Brendan, would receive inquiries from other businesses and executives that they wanted to buy out Wistia. That's the best practice, right? You start a startup, you build that tech company to the point where it's successful, and you sell it and pocket that cashola. That's the idea. Mm Mm-mm, not so for Wistia. They broke the best practice. They knew, wait a second, if we sell the business, we're getting rid of the thing that we want to be doing. We have a higher calling to this. There's a mission behind this, and we'd be giving up our vehicle to achieve that mission. So in 2018, they did something that seemed radical. They broke from the best practice, but for them, it made total sense in their situation. They took on $17 million in debt, and they used it to buy out their investors who urged them to sell. They refocused the company on becoming a profitable, self-sustaining business. They realized, we're not in this to exit. We're in this because of that mission. We're in this to make business more human. By the way, part of making business more human, they realized, is to stop obsessing over reckless growth. And they realized so much of marketing focuses on awareness and that causes those terrible tactics, that reckless growth. But awareness is just a proxy. You don't actually want awareness as a brand. You want affinity. You don't want just to be known. You want to be liked. So why not focus on the being liked part and maybe the awareness will take care of itself. So this caused them to decrease their investment in one-off standalone pieces of content. Those one-off pieces were focused on awareness. So instead, they invested in something focused on affinity, shows, original series of content, focused on depth and resonance over time. So two ideas, two insights informed Wistia's transformation. 
Number one, we're here not to sell this and stop, but to make business more human. And number two, marketing is not about awareness, it's about affinity. Both of these are examples of first principle insights, which are basic but hard to reach truths about your audience. For Wistia's leaders, like many of us, they have two audiences their team and their customers. They found a first principle insight to motivate both of them to take action. And that in turn helped them make better choices than any best practice could provide them. Finding first principles can be tough. You have to act like a, an annoying kid in the back of the van as mom drives to school every day. You have to ask why all the time. We're building Wistia. Why? To make video tools. Why? To help marketing and sales. Why? To focus on affinity, not awareness. Yeah, but why? To make business more human. Since making these changes, getting past the convention and reaching first principles, the company is thriving. First of all, throughout the pandemic, they've been hiring. They're actually growing. In the two years since, they've experienced 10% month-over-month growth of people searching on Google for the name Wistia. They went from losing $500,000 per year to more than $6 million in annual profits. Wistia doesn't sell tools to help marketers make videos. They sell tools that help people make a connection. And why? Because Wistia wants to make business more human. Ask yourself, what are your first principle insights? Have you dug deeper past the conventional advice to focus on your specific audience? These customers don't want awareness, they want affinity. What is that realization in your world? Investigate the second key variable in your context, your specific audience, the people your work is actually for. And then we can move on to the third and final variable present when you make choices, your specific resources. Let's go back to the before times, back when travel was fun and possible, and you could walk into your local barber shop without a mask and without fear of like anything, except for maybe a bad haircut. Although that was never my concern because my barber is this guy, Anthony Barriola. I mean, Akunzo Barriola. Come on, we're paisan. It was destiny, huh? Anthony runs a little shop called Razors in Somerville, Massachusetts. In this location, he's surrounded by competitors, all of whom claim to offer and do the exact same things the exact same way as Anthony. So how do you compete? Well, what most of us think about or think we need when we want to compete is more resources. I would do that, but I don't have the budget or the time. We want a huge amount of money to spend on marketing and sales. We're going to spray our message on every channel we can possibly find. We will fly our logo across the sky. Still alone? Yep. Cool. Anthony couldn't afford to do any of that. Anthony had no budget as a barber. So here's what he did instead. Every time he went on a trip, he'd find a barber in that area and he'd pay them a visit and learn the craft from them. Then he started to film these experiences in New Hampshire, in Brooklyn, in Amsterdam, in Italy. And he cut together some videos, but again, not a lot of resources, couldn't pay a professional, so his early attempts at video were kind of flat. Anthony knew, if only I could inspire others the way I felt inspired on all these trips, maybe they'd feel so inspired about what I do, they'd come to Razors over a competitor. So he thought, okay, uh, maybe music would help. But again, he couldn't afford anything, so he just kind of used some of those crappy stock songs you can find online for free. So that's when he got creative. He realized tons of musical acts, musicians, and artists tour through Boston all the time. So why not offer them a fresh cut and a free shave so they look great on stage? Anthony then reached out to a bunch of bands and he traded free cuts and free shaves for a private performance of a song or two inside Razor's Barbershop. 
He filmed each of those and then he used that music to score each video from his travels. And those videos became a whole web series that Anthony called Anthony Shaves the World. <laughs> it's incredible, right? But let me show you a clip really quick. Uh, this clip is when he goes to Brooklyn, but the first shot is actually inside of Anthony's shop in Somerville, Massachusetts, inside of Razor's. Uh, the barbershop they go to, by the way, quintessentially Brooklyn. Half barber, half espresso bar. All right, here is a clip from the Brooklyn episode of Anthony Shaves the World. When I can't run anymore, I will walk. When I can't walk anymore, I may stumble. And down on my knees, I will crawl. Yes, down on my knees, I will crawl. People adored this series. Razors went from yet another shop in the area to the number one rated on Yelp and winner of all kinds of local awards. Anthony just does this thing all the time. He does what he can, where he's at, with what he's got. Whether it's tacking on a quick video session when he's traveling or finding a clever workaround to his limited budget to buy music. Anthony's done whole concerts in Razors now. He's done morning brunches with local artists as well. He's partnered with apparel brands to do pop-up hat stores inside of Razors, pop-up pizza shop, pop-up cocktail night, pop-up comedy inside a barbershop. He's very constrained, but he's wildly creative. And that is right in line with the science. It's no accident that Anthony's so creative. Every study on creativity reveals the same thing. When you know and accept your constraints, you can come up with more ideas and better ideas, quantity and quality together. When you need to be creative, it turns out constraints are your strengths. Turns out you can innovate better inside the box. As long as you know your constraints and accept them. And when we struggle, it's because we keep running into invisible walls of the box that we didn't know were even there. And then we need to get clarity with our teams and debate about what the constraints even are. And if you're a leader, by the way, remember this. Make sure the constraints are crystal clear to your team up front. Communicate the walls of the box. And then, and this is crucial, stay out of the box. When people have a clear understanding of their boundaries, in other words, their constraints, and they're allowed to innovate within that frame, that is where magical things happen. Ask yourself, what are my constraints? Do you know them and can you find a way to accept them? Three variables present whenever you make a decision that are unique to your context and three things you need to investigate more. And here are three questions to get you started if you need them. Today, of course, Anthony Barriola is not traveling or hosting events or his show. And yet his business just opened a second location across town. He has such passionate fans that they're supporting him through the pandemic and so much so that he can expand. It's incredible, right? We all want to feel more like Anthony and, and not just survive, but thrive. And I believe we can. But first, we have to stop settling for plans B and C and D and E and embrace that finding best practices isn't the point. Finding the best approach for you is. We can stop acting like experts and start acting like investigators. If the playbook has been shredded for us, that's okay. It was missing some key variables present in each of our unique situations anyway. And we can use those things, acting where we are with what we've got every single day. What is your aspirational anchor? What is your first principle insight? And what are your constraints? 
you, your audience, and your resources, the three biggest variables that best practices simply don't take into account. Remember Goodhart's law. Instead of making the metrics the goal, use the metrics to measure the actual goal, making things better, creating some kind of positive change in the world for the people that you're aiming to serve. That is the goal. That is the job. Not make quota, not make some content, make a difference. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.